0: Welcome to the Playgroup Q&A podcast from Nick Hearn Books. Each week during the coronavirus shutdown, Nick Hearn Books is making one play available completely for free and asking everyone who reads it to send in a question for the writer. I'm your host, Sian Mayhall Purvis. I work at Nick Hearn Books, and for this week's episode I spoke to Steph Smith about her surreal and darkly funny drama, Human Animals. Human Animals premiered at the Royal Court Theatre, London, in May 2016, in a production directed by Hamish Pirrie. Spoiler alert, we will be discussing the play in full. Steph spoke to me from her home in Glasgow, and I started our conversation by asking her to briefly describe Human Animals in her own words.
1: So Human Animals is an ensemble piece for six actors and it's about six characters navigating a pandemic that has been started by either birds or foxes. And throughout the play, it's questioned what the nature of the pandemic is or if it's
0: even real. Love that we've got mention of the pandemic within seconds of this podcast starting. (laughs) (laughs) So Katie asks, was
1: there anything in particular that inspired you to write this play? Human Animals was inspired by my own interest in speciesism, which is the assignment of rights depending on a species. So for example, we always tend to see monkeys are more important than dogs and dogs are more important than ants and so on and so forth. And it was a sort of philosophical conversation that always interested me, um, particularly because I'm vegetarian since i was 15 i've always been very interested in animal rights and i wanted to find a way to dramatize that philosophical conversation um and also at that point while i was writing it there was a big conversation happening about the sixth great extinction which is means by the end of this century 50 percent of animal and plant life will be extinct and they were two two themes that i was really interested in exploring and they were the jumping off point for the play
0: Lydia asks, "Why did you choose animals as the suspected threat within the play?" So you've spoken that you were interested in this idea of speciesism and wanted to find a way to dramatize that on stage. So what was what led you to deciding for animals to be sort of the threat within the
1: play? So. Um, I've always had an interest with animals on stage, whether it's people using live animals or whether they're metaphors for a greater conversation. And it's certainly something that I've used throughout my works. For example, with Swallow, um, we had a character who was obsessed with birds and laterally imagined a pelican in their life um, as a metaphor for their own mental health. So it's a theme that's woven throughout my work, sometimes in a big way, sometimes in a much smaller way. And I think sort of the the bigger metaphor of the piece is uh, the fact that we're quite often we deny the animal within humanity I suppose and we like to think of ourselves as separate and I wanted to discuss that and and unearth that conversation that how that sort of conscious or unconscious choice that we've made to believe that we are better than the rest of the animal kingdom has caused huge problems within our society in both an environmental way but also um about our relationship with power
0: so human animals premiered in may 2016 and closed on the 18th of june which was only five days before the eu referendum and barbara one of our readers said that she read a review which said that the reviewer felt that the play was exploring immigration fears such was the context at the time and barbara asked were you thinking along those lines when you wrote it or were you also thinking about our environmental crisis? I sort of want to flip Barbara's question around because you've spoken about how animal rights have affected your writing of the play. But did that context of immigration and our EU membership come into your writing as well?
1: Yeah, I think the foundation of human animals is very much about animal rights and looking at environmental issues but I think that rhetoric and um, that came in while I was writing it about for, so for example those horrible articles that existed about cockroaches coming in from you know moving across Europe and um, which was awful but suddenly it gave the play this whole other level of relevance to the conversations that were happening which was something that we Definitely embraced in later drafts and in the production, but I also think it's a play on a much broader sense about fear. At that point, that was the sort of conversation that the world was having about fear of, uh, you know, fear of Brexit, fear of leaving the EU, and the fear that the right had of people coming in from other countries. And so, I suppose it inadvertently became a conversation about immigration. Although that's not particularly where the play started, Um, but yes, in many ways, if you were to ask me. More broadly, what's the play about? It's a play about fear, how fear is contagious. Because um, within the play, it's n- you never really find out what the pandemic was. And certainly some characters just believe it was fear spreading itself.
0: On that idea of fear, that's definitely an element of the play that rings very true today. People projecting other fears onto the pandemic, like the backlash we're seeing against 5G, for example, Was it sort of fear in these big crises that you're interested in exploring or more generally about the nature of fear itself? Well, I
1: think within Human Animals, all the characters have a really different relationship towards fear. Some of them are arguably fearless. um, Some of them embrace their fear and some of them totally ignore it. You know, there's a line in the play from John where he said, "I, I thought it was supposed to get less frightening as you got older. And it's this idea that we can somehow shelter ourselves from the the worst, the worst of it and whatever it may be. Um, and certainly the idea behind using animals within the play is this, um, not invisible threat, but a threat that we can't control and one that we thought was harmless. And suddenly all these, you know, the birds and the doves and the hedgehogs, you know, everything that we thought was once banal actually is, has become a threat to us and i think that's something that even i would say in the last 10 years with how the media portrays news stories quite so often the angle is what we should fear and how we get through the fear um and i think that's unhealthy for us i don't think we have quite worked out how to navigate that as humans i think things like social media although they're can be forces of good. I think that sort of rapid intake of news that so often is filled with fear and or anger. I think you know our, our poor sort of animal brains aren't, aren't yet designed to cope with that and I think that's so often the trigger to people having poor mental health and that's something that I suppose the place begins to look at is how how the character's ability to cope is linked with their ability to, to say that I'm scared or to deal with their own fear. And I think that is something that to, to lesser or greater degrees in a lot of my work. Though there is, of course, a lot of darkness in the
0: play, there's also humour to be found. And in terms of striking that balance in the tone, Sarah asks, how important is humour when writing a
1: dystopian landscape? Well, that's a good question. I think, you know, I never ever think of myself as a comedy writer. I think that's a different skill set. Um, but There's quite often dark humour or wit in my work. Um, I think I'm always keen to balance out bleakness with humour um, because I think if you have light there, it makes the darkness darker, it makes the lightness lighter. Um, so it's about balance. And also I think it's about ensuring that there's a humanity to the characters Um, and I think humour or wit is a really lovely way of inviting an audience into the journey of the play but also of warming them towards the characters so for me it's something that I'm always interested in having in my work even just flickers of it because I think they act as moments of relief and also it opens up the audience to the journey so I think regardless of whether it's you know, one is writing a dystopia or not. It's always something I'm interested in having in my work, even in just really small moments. At the start of our conversation, you
0: described Human Animals as an ensemble play, but Liz asks, did you connect with any one character in particular?
1: I think I always connect with all of my characters, um, some of them more than others. It was funny, in rehearsal, I remember, so Hamish Perry directed, the premiere production at the Royal Court. And I remember having a conversation with him in the middle of rehearsals. And there's a character called Alex, who was a young woman in her 20s. Um, And at that point I was a young woman in my 20s. And uh, she was battling against, well, in the play she's battling against what she perceives as injustice and can't quite find the tools to navigate the world. now that she's seen this injustice and I think I remember uh, during rehearsals Hamish Perry was like that's basically you isn't it and I was like <laughs> no 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 that's not me that's not me and then I sort of sat with it longer. and I thought oh well yeah there's quite a lot of me in there um, but I think there's sort of parts of me in all the, all the characters but I suppose in lots of ways Alex is probably the one who was the most similar to me during that time So you originally
0: studied directing didn't you is yeah. that right? Yeah that is right Someone's been on Google. (laughs) (laughs) Vicky asks, do your directorial roots inform or
1: affect your writing? That's uh, another interesting question. Well, I suppose there's two answers here. My instinct is to say no, they don't, because when you read my plays, there's very few stage directions. It's usually just um, dialogue and monologue, what people say rather than what they're doing or what, for example, a stage look like. So in some ways you could say that I've totally erased my um, directorial brain in my writing because there's hopefully lots of room for a director. But I suppose with my training, so I I did a course called Drama and Theatre Arts at Queen Margaret in Edinburgh and it was a very practical degree and partly I took the directing specialism was Uh, One of the reasons I took it was because it was so practical. You got to shadow performances and other directors and see how the industry really worked on a practical level as well as sort of an academic and intellectual level. And so in some ways that's totally informed my journey into theatre because I do feel like I have a good understanding of everybody that it takes to make a play. Um, But in the writing of a play, I don't think it has affected me in a massive way. We have a couple of questions about the sections of
0: unassigned text, which are in italics. How should I refer to those sections?
1: In the rehearsals for the production at the Royal Court, we called them the Blink sections, um, which I I can't quite remember how we came up with that name, whether it was something I gave or we sort of agreed on collectively, um, because the thing that they represent is... Or one of the things they represent because I think they can hold lots of meaning hopefully in them but the sort of avenue that we took to understanding them collectively as a company um, was that there are moments that you let the fear in of what's happening in the outside world and you just have a blink of despair or anger and then you know the the rational part of you is able to push that away and down. And so we call them the blink moments because there's sort of a blink of of emotion. Um, And that's how we came up with that name, yeah. And we had two questions
0: about these sections, the blinks, from two different readers, both called Josh. And so the first Josh asks, how did the lines moving across the page affect the performance? and the other Josh asked how were these sections
1: performed in the production at the Royal Court? So the lines were assigned by the director Hamish Perry and from what I recall in those rehearsals um, we did lots of different experiments of how they might be done so for example one person saying all of them or two or two people saying all of them and because they sit in very particular moments in the play, it was they were quite often defined by the scene that came before and the scene that came after. And all of them were done by everyone. Um, some people had more lines than others. And in regards to sort of the formatting in the play, um, the written play, how that was reflected on stage was about, I suppose, the Maybe the best way to understand it is sort of major notes and minor notes, almost like sort of vocal choreography, if you will. Some of them were said, um, I suppose in layman terms, louder. Some of them were softer and it was about, you know, it was very much Hamish's call about where he wanted the audience to focus in on those moments.
0: Mirren also asked, did they come about naturally through your writing
1: Process were they always a part of the play? Yeah, the and um, the blink moments were definitely always part of this play. The first draft was actually written while I was attending um, a writers group at the Royal Court, and the first draft of the play was much wilder in many ways. Um, it was, I think, a hundred scenes um, that were not, I would say, as narratively structured as this version of the play is, or the production version was, um, and so the blink scenes were always a part of it and I would say in the earlier drafts they were even they were even bigger part of it. And then it became clear that as I redrafted the play and really focused in on the dramaturgy of it, that we needed, um, it was a less is more situation and actually using them much more concisely and in very specific moments made them more impactful than them being peppered throughout the play.
0: Ruth asks, at the start of the play, the different scenes are quite distinct, but as the play progresses and the situation gets worse, this structure starts to break down and scenes begin to blur together. What was your thinking behind this?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really astute observation. The idea behind that was that the play begins to become infested by its own ideas. And so the very sort of clear cut scenes at the start slowly start to merge and smudge into into the blink scenes and the scenes start to blur into each other. Because this idea that the world on the outside is encroaching in in on them and that their world is getting smaller and smaller and more enmeshed but also that the ideas and the fear are starting to pollute the play itself so everything becomes much more saturated and less defined which is an idea that I suppose is also in the play itself so everything it becomes inseparable I suppose it's the best way to put it
0: Mm. For me as well it it started to feel that everything was you know, closing in on everyone, it always becoming the tension and the sort of claustrophobia or everything is starting to, it amps up as the play goes on. And those, yeah, as you say, those scenes are kind of all encroaching in on each other. Mm-hmm. Carolina asks, so this is when we're going to really get into the meat of today. Okay. <laughs> Do you think that the interpretation of human animals will change in the face of current events?
1: Absolutely. I think it's inevitable. I think, um, you know, there's there was de- there's definitely been a rise of plays um, exploring dystopias in the last few years. And, you know, and Human Animals is one of those plays. And also, I think it's funny. I, a couple of people were tweeting me extracts that I um, had actually forgotten about in the play about people wearing face masks in call centres or people baking through the apocalypse <laughs> yeah. and how that was infuriating <laughs> to others. And I, I must admit, I'd, I'd forgotten <laughs> those bits until I went and reread it um, before we were talking today. One of my questions to you was going to be Did you sit down,
0: look into a crystal ball, see a vision <laughs> of 2020, and put pen to paper? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, so uh,
0: yeah, the shortage of eggs while everyone's trying to do their quarantine baking. And uh another scene that particularly chimed with me was um is it too early to have and tea?" <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. I think um I don't really know what this um, moment in time will mean for human animals in the future. Whether people will suddenly want to look at it and do it, or whether it might be, it might suddenly feel too on the nose. I think I had never really envisioned it being so close to life. If I'm being honest, um, it's quite it's an it's an unfortunate thing, that's for sure. And so I think the reading of human animals will change because the world has changed. Um, and I think with any seismic event, it throws up new meanings. For plays which i think is a wonderful thing um because so many plays are about a moment in time and then when you look back and realize that they're still so prescient um it's a f- it's an exciting thing um but yes i must admit i'm i'm sorry that human animals is suddenly so <laughs> true to life i think it is interesting because all of the conversation
0: that people have been having around I suppose particularly disaster films and post-apocalyptic fiction of all kinds people like well if if any of those stories are to be written in the future now they're going to have to include all these bizarre little details like toilet roll hoarding and all that sort of thing but it it seems so uncanny to me these quite small details and human animals which have been accurate to our current experience. And I think those, yeah, those moments were sort of particularly, um, they're just unnerving when reading them now, reading them in the last week. And we've been trying throughout the play group to, we've been particularly drawn to plays that will have a slightly different resonance now. And yeah, with human animals that is particularly yeah, it's just quite a gut punch how bizarrely close it feels to what we're
1: living now. Yeah, I, you know, I, I suppose the other thing to say is during the when while I was writing this play, I was doing lots of research into pandemics, and so as much as it might feel like I have a crystal ball, actually. I, some of the choices that I made in the play were just riffs on things that had already happened to a smaller degree. So for even, for example, I grew up during the foot and mouth crisis in a rural community. So the idea of, you know, dipping your shoes into, um, I don't, I, I couldn't name what it was, but a sort of antibacterial solution before going into the local co-op became normal. And it's, you know, in the piles of burning animals and cows, that became our new normal. And so this play is also, inspired by those events that I experienced as a teenager growing up in rural Scotland and so I think as uncanny as some of the similarities might be to what we're going through and you know to much 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 smaller degrees the pockets of the world have already experienced things like this and so it's very much drawn on on those experiences through my research and also through personal experience um, and it's just unfortunate that we're, we're experiencing it on this absolutely global, worldwide scale, which I suppose is something that we haven't experienced. You find research to be a really useful tool for your writing
0: process.
1: Yeah, I think, I I mean, I love research. In fact, I actually have to sort of stop myself from doing it. It gets to the point where I'm like, okay, you've researched enough, now you have to start the writing process. (laughs) Um, And there's always... I, you know, I can't think of a play that I've written that hasn't had a, an element of research to it, some more than others. For example, Girl in the Machine, which is also set in a dystopian and is about uh, an imagined piece of technology. I, w- I had to do lots of research into what people imagined um, technology might look like in you know, 50, 60, 70 years. And then, less so, in say something like Swallow. Or enough the the research gone into that is maybe a bit more specific, so, for example, with enough, it was about how the sort of protocol of cabin crew during a flight. but after that, it, it, there was less research involved. but I would say there's always some sort of research element to my work um, and it's certainly a part of my work that I really enjoy. I want to
0: just jump back for a moment and ask if you think that this experience will affect what writers want to write about?
1: Yeah, I think this I think this will impact writers and I think in a practical way and in a sort of more philosophical way, in a practical way, I think it will be a while before newly commissioned work hits our stages because there's going to be a backlog of things that were meant to happen this year and can't and will be transplanted into next year and that will have ramifications for the following year and so on and so forth. Um, so in that way, there's sort of a practical um, potential hiatus for work and for writers. Um, and also, I do wonder what this, I think, it will be interesting to know what audiences would like to see after this. Um, what this means for pieces of writing that are dealing with dystopias, whether they'll, people will really want to, see them because they'll feel like a reflection on their experience or whether people will have enough and actually you know people won't want that and i think it's really hard to reflect on something while you're in the middle of it in fact probably impossible and so i think that you know the simple answer is yes i think this will change things for writers and playwrights in particular but how and and what that means it's impossible to say so How
0: are you spending your time in lockdown? Well, my flat's really
1: clean. (laughs) (laughs) I've done a lot of organising of drawers and cupboards. Um, I'm still writing. I had some deadlines that were put in my diary before this all happened, so I'm doing my very best to honour them. Um, Reading, watching, being as much in the moment as possible. I think I'm, I'm probably doing what everyone else is doing. I don't think I'm... Navigating this in any particularly remarkable way, <laughs> we've just got to we're all sort of taking each other's lead on how to get through it. And I think the sort of wants and needs of each of us changes on, you know, on a daily basis, if not an hourly basis. So we just have to, you know, um, trust the animal in us, I suppose, and yes. um, let it. Yes, trust what we what we need and what we want, mm. and uh, honour them
0: when we can. Do you have any advice for writers currently living in lockdown?
1: Yeah, I think my main part of advice is be kind to yourself. Um, I think some people, everyone will navigate this experience differently. Some people will find it very empowering to put pen to paper. And for some people, it will be impossible. And I think there's no right or wrong way to navigate this Um And you don't, it also doesn't have to be some sort of remarkable time of change or evolution for you as an artist. It can also just be really shit and something that you survive. Um, And I think you just have to allow your experience to be the one for you. Um, I think if you're trying to write and struggling, I think it's good to think about why you're struggling. Um, And if it's due to procrastination, then you can do all the things that most of us do, which is turn off the internet, turn off your phone, you know, sit down in front of a Word document and try and get going. But I think you also have to be kind to yourself and know when sometimes it just won't be possible. I think that's
0: lovely. And I think it's true for, you know, those of you who are listening and you aren't a writer. That's true for you as well. Just be kind to yourself in this time and whatever you're trying to, and whatever works that you have to do, isn't it? Mm. So, of course, if you do turn off the internet, you'll be missing another eerie parallel between human animals and the world today. All of these wonderful and bizarre stories of animals sort of running loose around cities and towns.
1: I'm forever getting tagged in stuff where like <laughs> it's like sheep moving through a city center or like and it, you know there's even at one point there was a thing about a pe- uh a group of pelicans walking through london i was like oh great so it's human animals and swallow it's like a mashup <laughs> of my work <laughs> um but yeah no it's i mean that that is a remarkable thing about animals ability abilities to survive and i think that's why you know that's why i used foxes in it because they're so Robust and ingenious and adaptable. You could have
0: told us, or what do you think a pandemic looks like? I, I wouldn't have said that. I imagine sort of lambs to be playing in children's playgrounds and (laughs) goats
1: uh, balancing on people's roofs. Um, So it's the golden age of animal content, that's for sure. (laughs) On (laughs) Twitter, absolutely, absolutely. Thank
0: you so much for speaking to us today, Steph. It's been really lovely to talk to you about human
1: animals. Thank you, Nick Hearn Books, for having me and for your continued good work throughout this strange and surreal part of history we're living through. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening to the Playgroup Q&A podcast from Nick Hearn Books. The NHB Playgroup is on hiatus next week but we'll be back with a new free play to read on Wednesday the 20th of May. Keep an eye out for updates at www.nikernbooks.co.uk/playgroup. We'd like to thank Steph Smith for taking part and all of you who sent in a question. We didn't have time to ask all of them but we hope you'll keep the discussion going online. For now, take care and see you next time.